Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Nice to be here back in Adonai. I'm so grateful to be back here. This time I was planning to speak from John chapter 14, but I'm going to be speaking from John chapter 17. But uh, I believe even the choice of your songs today uh, at worship has confirmed to me that this is what God wants to share with us. Now, I want to make a suggestion. If you have some time this evening, try reading John 13 to John 17 in one sitting. You might have heard me say this the last time I was here, but I want to tell you that these five chapters have been growing on me for the last 40 years or so. But I believe that um, God is saying something to his people through his son Jesus Christ about the Holy Spirit through his beloved disciple John. Now I'm going to uh, read a few verses from John 17. I want you to follow it. And then basically I'm going to emphasize the word glory because we are very quite familiar with the Old Testament. Glory is always spectacular. I was looking at Exodus chapter 40 when Moses dedicates the tabernacle, the tent, the glory of God fills it. 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple that he built for God, the glory fills the temple and the priests are not able to minister. But when you come to John 17, you have a nuanced view of the word glory. It is not always spectacular. Sometimes it can actually be very scandalous. Now, uh, what we are going to look at mainly, three aspects of glory or three uh, points about glory. We are going to look at the glory of the Trinity. And I'm very happy that Charles and his team, when you sang that song, uh, Father, Spirit, Son, and the other one, I've never heard that, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit. Uh, the Lord was kind of confirming to me that this change from John 14 to John 17 is from Him and not from me. And so we are going to look at the glory of the Trinity, and then we are going to look at the glory of the cross. And finally, the glory in the church. Glory of the Trinity, glory in the cross, and glory in the church. We shall first look at John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I want them, those you have given me, to be with me and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. The glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I want to tell you that the doctrine of the Trinity, Pastor Victor has been suggesting that probably sometime next year, God willing, we will have a one-day seminar on the Trinity. But I want to tell you that uh, Trinity is a doctrine that we believe, I'm sure, it's up there on the website of Adonai. But we Christians, we all believe in the Trinity, but we pray to the Trinity that nobody should ask us questions about the Trinity. And today we are going to look at something. I want to tell you a very peculiar incident that happened many years ago. I was helping with a college students group in Delhi. I was posted in Delhi at the time with the government of India. And because I came to the Lord through the ministry of the Evangelical Union, uh, my burden has always been for college students. And in this group, there was a Hindu girl, and she asked a brilliant question. She said, you Christians say God is good, 
God is love, but goodness and evil are equal and opposite. She said, evil is the absence of good, something like that. And so if there is a God, he should be beyond good and beyond evil. How can you say God is good? Now that's a brilliant question and only Indians can answer that brilliant question. I don't think Americans will be able to answer that. Because this is part of one of our philosophies that this country gave birth to. Because God is nirguna, he is beyond qualities. And here we have the Christian community in India worshipping God and saying that he is good and he is love. Now I tried to answer her question this way. I want you to listen to this now and maybe listen to it later in the recording. I said, first of all, your definition that good is the opposite of evil, or good and evil are equal and opposite, is not a correct definition. Evil is the absence of good. Good can exist without reference to evil, but evil cannot exist without reference to good. Just like a counterfeit cannot exist without reference to the original, but the original can exist without the existence of the counterfeit. Like darkness is the absence of light, that light can exist. Silence is the absence of sound, but sound can exist. That's why in physics we learn light and sound. We don't learn about darkness and silence. So we begin to say that there is an original which exists, and the original in the God that we talk about is a relationship which is love. And so I brought in the doctrine of the Trinity, and that is here, God reveals himself, Jesus reveals himself as one who is relational, the relationship between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Which is why we who worship this God can say that this God is love because that is his eternal being. And so you begin to see that this verse that we read today, John 17, 24, is the best definition of love. For us Christians who have been saved by Jesus Christ and with whom we are in communion, John 3.16 is the favorite verse. But today I want you to lift John 3.16 to John 17.24. John 3.16 is the overflow of John 17.24. John 3.16 is the spillover. I would even go to the extent of saying that John 3.16 describes the crumbs that fall under the table of the triune God. Even if one drop of triune love is able to save the whole of creation. And so I want you to begin to lift up your eyes and see and begin to worship God. Those songs that we sang today. The other thing I noticed, I was very happy about it. I saw that some of the I songs had been converted to we songs. When did this conversion begin? Long ago, very good. You know, there's all kinds of conversions taking place. Now, we must remember, when we worship corporately, I'll come to this in my last point, glory in the church, but I want you to recognize that we are not just a collection of individuals. We are one body united by the love of the triune God, and therefore when we worship God together, the dynamic is different from when we worship God by ourselves in the mornings or in the evenings. So please remember that there is a difference between the church worshipping together because we are acknowledging, even without using those words, that we are acknowledging the love of the triune God. And that is why when you go back, and because uh, the bands were uh, read about marriage between Shashi and Divya, am I right? Divya Shri, okay. Um, 
it's good for us to see why the Bible is all about marriage. You find that in the first and second chapters of the Bible, God creates us man and woman, Adam and Eve, and that is the first marriage. Towards the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, we see the church, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I want to tell you that that is why the Song of Songs is one of the central books in the Bible. Some of you older people would know uh, the name of Mr. Prakash Esudian, who was a very famous evangelist, who was based here in Bangalore when he was working for Ambassadors for Christ, and then moved to Chennai to head up the Rabbi Zacharias Ministries. He was my first boss. And um, I remember his telling me a story. He was speaking at a convention uh, of churches in uh, Secunderabad. And the theme was, Christ is the answer. And the last day, when he, was, uh, when he finished speaking, there was no time for Q&A. But this girl stood up and said, I am a Hindu. I am a PhD student in Usmania University. I have two questions. You say Christ is the answer, but what is the question? Now, that immediately reminds that we Christians give, go, keep on giving answers to questions which are not asked. And for questions that they do ask, we have no answers. And then she came up with a far more serious second question. She said, why do you have the Song of Songs in the Bible and call it the Word of God? Why don't you collect all the pornography in the world and call that the Word of God? Prakash told me that he felt like catching the train and returning to Bangalore. Now, what would you say? It is such a beautiful question. It's an important question because we have it as a central book in the Bible. I want to tell you something about this book, which I chanced upon uh, when I was um, doing some research. It was a Jewish commentary on the Song of Songs. And this commentary said that this uh, lover and the beloved are not Solomon. In fact, Solomon is a very poor example of marriage. But this song was sung in Solomon's court because he was the emperor. Uh, it is a love story between a shepherd boy and a shepherd girl. Because you see the young man skipping down the hills. Now, I cannot imagine Solomon doing that for two reasons. One is he must have been overweight. Second, with all his kingly robes, skipping down the hills is simply impossible. You saw the trekking. You need to be properly dressed for trekking. And this is a love story in chapter 5 of Song of Songs. The girls, some of the girls from Solomon's harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines come to this girl and ask her, why is your beloved better than any other beloved? And what she does is to describe him explicitly anatomically and to say he is altogether lovely. He does the same thing in chapter 6, where he describes the girl explicitly anatomically. And you know the conclusion I've reached. Song of Songs is the original of which pornography is the counterfeit. Because any human marriage between the two of you looks back retrospectively on the Trinity, looks forward prospectively to the marriage between Christ and the church. And that is the glory of the triune God when he made us in his image. And therefore, I want to tell you, uh, young people, 
bring your sexuality pure to the marriage altar. Because when we are reflecting on the being of God, we are not only invited to worship, but because we are made in his image, in this most intimate human relationship before the coming of Christ, reflects something intimate about the triune God. Let me go to the second point. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then I'm going to go back to chapter 12 of John's Gospel and tell you something about this meaning of the word glory. Jesus is saying, verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What did he mean by that? Uh, Just before the cross. This is the Thursday evening before the first Good Friday. What did Jesus mean by glorify? Turn to John 12. I'm going to read a slightly extended passage beginning at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. But Philip was a Greek speaking Jew. That's why the Greeks come to him with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now, listen to what Jesus is saying in reply. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only as a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor him, honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. When you look at this answer that Jesus gives to these Greeks, they wanted to see Jesus, probably for him to perform some miracle. Jesus' answer to the Greeks is totally beside the point. It is irrelevant. What did he mean by glorify? Those of us who are familiar with Jesus' um, conversation with Nicodemus, again in John's Gospel, John chapter 3, after telling him that he should be born again, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man should be lifted up. And here he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Jesus was referring to the glory of the cross. Now, I want to tell you that sometimes when um, in the charismatic churches uh, we talk about glory, we always think of the spectacular. I want to tell you that this word glory, simple word glory, has many dimensions. And now I want to unpack for you in a few minutes the glory of the cross. Why is cross, the cross called glorious? I want to quickly turn your attention to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And look at verse 16. This is after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, had rebelled against God. 
And God says something to the woman. Now the first part of verse 16, John 3, is understandable. I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. That means your relationship to nature in terms of giving childbirth is going to be painful because you have rebelled against me. Later he will tell the man, work will become toil. You were working in the garden, but now you will work sweating it out. You will put in 100 units of work, you will get only 50 units of fruit. The remaining 50 will go as waste. That's what in physics we call the second law of thermodynamics. Even our relationship with nature is broken. Come back to verse 16. In the second part of verse 16, he says something like this. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I'm reading from the NIV. Now if I ask the wives here, do you think it's a good verse or a bad verse or a mixture? What will your answer be? Anyone want to venture an answer? Sounds partly good. There's nothing wrong for the wife to have a desire for her husband. But the husband ruling over the wife doesn't sound very nice. But I want to tell you that this word in the Hebrew language is the shuka. It occurs in the next chapter. Genesis 4 verse 7, God tells Cain before he murders his brother Abel, sin desires to have you. There is only one more incident where um, this uh, word appears, that is in Song of Songs, where it is used in a positive way, where it is his desire for the girl. His desire is for me, she says. Now, what is this word desire? What is this sashuka? It is actually a manipulative desire. If you wanted me to translate that part of Genesis 3.16 in 21st century language, God says something like this to the woman. You will use your feminine charm to control and manipulate your husband. And the dumb macho man will not know how to respond except by dominating you. So it's actually a statement about control. Now control is not just between husband and wife. How many of you parents have a child two, three, four years old? Have you seen your child manipulating you against your wife? Amazing, she has not yet gone to the university. But where did she learn to control her parents? You know, I want to tell you that this control is in our genes. You just cannot defeat it. But then why did Jesus say that he's being glorified on the cross? Because the cross is where God chose to lose control over his creation and allow his creatures to crucify his son. The most drastic solution you can think of. I am just adding one more dimension to the cross. Why do we have this cross here? The cross is a symbol, a scandal, shame. But the cross is the place where Satan is finally defeated. The spirit of control, the spirit of legalism cannot be defeated except through the cross. Which is why the cross confuses the devil. He prompts Peter to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Matthew chapter 16. But he gets into Judas and sends him to the cross. John chapter 13. I want you to recognize that the cross is the glory, is a glorious cross. Let me turn forward to John chapter 19. Jesus has been crucified, but Pilate committed a typographical error in what he put on the cross of Jesus. Pilate had a notice 
I'm reading from verse 19. John 19 verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic or Hebrew, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I want to tell you, Pilate almost sounds like an Old Testament prophet. But that's exactly what he's saying. I'm not going to change it. Without recognizing what he had written, he was proclaiming that Jesus became king on the cross, where he defeated his arch enemy, the devil. I'm reading through some of the books of N.T. Wright. His voluminous book, about 700 pages, is called Jesus and the Victory of God. Originally, Wright wanted to include the resurrection in that same book. But then he found that this volume itself was going so big, so he wrote another 700-page book on the resurrection of the Son of God. But I want to tell you that this is an important point. We Christians who constantly talk about victory, please remember that there is no victory outside the cross. And the cross continues to baffle people. It definitely confuses the devil even now. Let me read a verse from Paul now. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 onwards. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all this. We have experienced what I've read. But having canceled the written code, that is the law, with its implications, that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and principalities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What a majestic statement. I want to tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, and that is very difficult even for us to understand. Please do not present Christ as only the provider. Please present Christ as the one who is crucified. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians with all their Greek philosophy, he says, I came to you not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the power of the Spirit. I proclaim to you Jesus and Him crucified. My wife rang me the other day, and she said uh, that this um, neighbor of ours, uh, a young lady younger than our daughter Prashanti, and her husband, of course, been talking about Christ very often. And her husband got a book from Germany, two copies of the book, in which it is claimed that Jesus uh, is an invention of the church. He was a nobody. We have very little record of, his, um, of the time before his cross and so on. And uh, that is what, so she was reading it. And now I'm reading another book by N.T. Wright on the strip. It is called The Day the Revolution Began. And Wright's point is the revolution of the church, the ushering of the kingdom of God began at the cross. That's why we are here in Adonai. And I want to tell you, the first chapter of that book is about a scandal. If, if we were to get a PRO, a public relations officer, to concoct a story about Jesus, 
That PRO is not going to tell you that the first chapter of this publicity should be the cross. I mean, that is my greatest proof why Christianity is true. It, it didn't start with a publicity stunt. It started with a scandal. In fact, within the first three centuries, we are not quite sure what the date was. There is a rough inscription in a Roman tablet where a Christian, his name is Alexamenos, he is kneeling before a cross in which a person is crucified, but the head of a donkey is on that person. And there is a writing saying Alexamenos worships his God. It was probably a Roman making fun of a Christian. That's how Christianity began. It is not the way a normal publicity will go. I want you to begin to see as we come to the third point, when we talk about glory in the church, it is the life of the cross now lived out in the church. In the church and the home, as you saw on the website, I want to tell you that those are the two central places today that God, the God of the Bible, has to be demonstrated. You know, when I meet some of my American friends who are very particular that the um, president should uh, be against homosexuality and all that, I fully agree with that. But I sometimes think homosexuality is not the only sexual sin. And one of the reasons the American gay community is so vocal against Christians is because Christians singled out homosexuality as a special sin, but all other sins are okay. You are not going to do this. I tell them, do not expect a secular government to legislate Christian morality. Christian morality belongs to the Christian home and the Christian church. And if we fail at those two levels, in fact, one of my African friends, he's, he's Kenyan, he's gone back to Kenya, he's working with us in Rabbi Zakharis Ministries, he's looking after the African branch, John Zoroge finished his PhD, you know what he said to an American audience, you guys are worried that uh, praying is banned from the schools, but do you pray at home? You know, this is the whole thing. I think we need to wake up. If the church is going to be the church in a country like India, which is why I think Indians, Africans, I think we are able to see the truth much better, all these majority Christian nations. And what is the glory in the church? That is what I shared with you the last time I was here, from John chapter 13. Let me read that section here. In John 17, from verses 20 to 22. My prayer is not for them alone. That means not for these 12, 11 alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That includes us in Adonai this morning. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See the word glory again? In the context of the church. Now I want to tell you a little bit about Greek. You know the Greek language has three different words for one. In the masculine, in the feminine, and in the neuter genders. Now my language, Tamil, and the heavenly language, Malayalam, uh, also have three separate words for one. Other languages, which I have tried to refer to, are not very clear. English is definitely not clear. 
If you go back to John 10 verse 30, Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. Same. Neutral gender. Jesus does not use the masculine gender. Let me tell you. Let me give you a story. You can see that I don't have much hair left. I don't comb my hair. I simply arrange them. If you see me after five years, and I've lost the rest of my hair, and if you ask me, are you the guy who came five years ago and spoke about, from John 17, about glory, I would say, yes, I and the person who spoke to you five years ago are one, and I would use the masculine gender, which means I am one and the same person. But Jesus did not use the masculine gender. He used the neuter gender to show that I and the Father belong to the same divine being, but we are not the same person. Which is why in Tamil, Nanum Pidavum Vandrayirukram. Nanum Pidavum Onnahunnam. In Malayalam. You know, in, uh, in these two languages, very clearly our own Indian languages, there are very clear three uh, distinct genders for the word one. And why is that important? Because in the church, Jesus is praying now for the church, that they may be one even as we are one. The church, just like marriage I mentioned earlier, demonstrates the oneness that exists between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Pastor Victor was actually asking me something in the, between the, uh, after the announcements. You know, it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is a kind of an anonymous person in the Trinity. In Romans 5 verse 5, Paul would say, It is through the Holy Spirit the love of God is poured into our hearts. Because the Spirit of God is the agent of unity. If you read those five chapters I suggested, John 13 through 17, in John 13 and John 17, you do not have a reference to the Holy Spirit. But in John 14, 15 and 16, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned here in John 17? Because what Jesus wanted the disciples to realize, that the Father and the Son are one, only through the Holy Spirit. And we, the people of God, will be one only through the same Spirit. It is not by any other means. It is not a peace treaty which you can sign through the United Nations. It is something that is possible only through the work of the Holy Spirit. Unity in the church is not possible except through the Spirit. And the Spirit will bring the cross center stage. Because in all our relationships, you will find that you have to be selfless. Marriage, the couple who are going to be married shortly, and those of us who have been married for very long, uh, we are married for 46 years. If you ask my wife, how have you stayed married to LT for 46 years? She has a tongue-in-cheek reply. She would say, because LT travels so much. What a funny reason for a successful marriage. Please don't teach this uh, in your family classes. You know, there's something very interesting in all marriages. I think one of the things is that marriage is a mystery. Don't ever think, you know, when a young couple come and tell us, oh, I'm certain that he, she should be my life partner. 100% God's will. Sorry, nobody knows anybody 100%. And there's a church in Pune where the organist who's from my village when the sermon begins goes out for a walk and comes back in time for the last hymn and somebody asked him why do you do that he said because if you heard one sermon you have heard all 
but uh, when I preach, he listens. And that day, that was about two years ago, my wife was also there. I said, we are married for 44 years, and still my wife is a mystery to me. How much more is God? You know, I want you to recognize that in our relations, very simple relationships, long-standing relationships, you will notice that there is something mysterious and very often something which is painful. And if you begin to see what is painful in a relationship, you will notice it is because somewhere I am not willing to give up my position or the other person is not willing to give up his or her position. We have to constantly begin to see that it is selflessness which is going to make the church life happy. It is selflessness which is going to make a marriage happy. It is selflessness which is going to help your children to see that you parents are godly parents. If you keep insisting on your way, a little child would be able to detect that selfishness. The cross has to be constantly at the center. So the cross is not only the instrument of cosmic salvation, salvation of human beings and redemption of the whole of creation, but the cross is also the only instrument active now which can repair relationships. If you remember what I said the last time I was with you from John 13, when you wash your feet, wash the feet of your brother, your sister, and he, she washes your feet, you notice that the one who washes has to deny himself, deny herself. You are operating under the sign of the cross. But you know what the world will see? The world will see two imperfect people in a perfect relationship. Let me read this verse again. Verse 23, John 17. What did Jesus say? May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Now, I was with the Rabbi Zacharias minister for close to 19 years. Apologetics, defending the truth of the gospel. But these five chapters to me are the best apologetic. How would people know that the father sent the son into the world? Because of the self-denying relationship within the body of Christ. When they see you in Adonai, they should want to be part of the community. I think between the two services, pastor is going to be inducting some new members. I want to tell you something. When you become a member of the church, you are not only coming to Christ, you are coming to a community. And just as Christ is attractive, the community has to be attractive. And a community cannot be attractive except through the cross. Just as Christ has become attractive only through his cross. I mean, it's very logical actually. Although we miss the total point. And that's why we have to have a study like John 17. You begin to see that in your relationship to one another, there are times when you shall no longer insist on your rights. And that is what is going to make a relationship beautiful. You have to begin to forgive a person who has done something which is impossible to forgive in normal terms. You have to write that letter, make that call, and you have to set things right so that there is unity. Unity is not unanimity. It is more than unanimity. Suppose in Adonai, you have a committee of seven members. You are designing where should have the uh, school of uh, ministry and healing. Somebody says, in Bangalore, glorious living waters, all that I am coming across. Okay, somebody says ECC, somebody says somewhere else. Three people feel strongly in place A, four people say place B. But this four place people tell the three place people, although we feel very strongly that we should have it here, but we will submit 
to you and let us have the school in the place you are suggesting. That is unity. See, if I came to a committee where everybody is saying the same thing, I'll tell the chairman of the committee, please dissolve this committee, it's useless. You must have counter-perspectives, but you are willing to submit your view to the others, and if it does not work out, you are not going to say, I told you so. You accept the responsibility for agreeing with them. That is unity, more than unanimity. Unity is not uniformity. You know, all of us here in the body of Christ, we are so different. Our conversion is different, our gifting is different. But that's the beauty of the church. Unity in diversity. Our Prime Minister constantly keeps saying it without realizing that it is easily, more easily said than done. It's only the beautiful mosaic of the triune God, which is the church, which is going to display the unity and diversity that is present in that divine being is going to be reflected in us. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three distinct persons, meant for three distinct roles, and yet they constitute one God. We who are many, as Paul would put it, we are one body, and we are going to serve one another and be willing to walk with one another. One final thought. If I've shared this with you, it's worth hearing it a second time. The year was 1969. I was posted in Nagpur, central India. I was looking after a fairly uh, large area to a project in the time was very small. I was looking after from central Maharashtra to a project in Raipur. And I was on a long rain, a train journey and um, in the morning, the train had entered Madhya Pradesh, which is now Chhattisgarh. And I stood at the door of my compartment and I was singing to God. Now, my um, cabin was just next to the door. You know, in those days, first class compartments, not air conditioned. And um, I didn't see any passenger sticking his neck out. But when I came back to my seat, I realized that um, my Hindu fellow passenger had been listening to me. And so he asked me, what were you doing just now? I said I was worshipping God. You know what he told me? He said your God must be an extremely selfish God. He wants all of you to worship him. I was speechless. If I came across that gentleman today, I would give him a one-hour lecture on the Trinity. What does Jesus say about the Trinity? Only in John's Gospel, eh? nowhere else. You do not find it even in Pauline epistles. I sometimes think John was young enough not to be embarrassed to lean on the breast of Jesus and to hear the heartbeat of the triune God. Poor Dan Brown thought that it was Mary Magdalene and wrote the book Da Vinci Code and made a few million dollars for himself. God bless him. But you know what? John says, uh, John chapter 5, he says the father delegates all power to the son so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. But in the same chapter, Jesus says, the Son will do nothing by himself. He will not say, now that the Father has delegated everything to me, I'll go and do my own thing. John chapter 16, what is the Holy Spirit saying? Spirit will not speak of himself, Jesus says. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and revealing them to you. I want to tell you, my dear brothers and sisters, three self-effacing persons constitute the God whom we worship. And if the church is to reflect this God, then we have to be self-effacing as well. Which is why pride is the ugliest sin in the life of a Christian. 
And the only antidote to pride is to become more God conscious, more Trinity conscious, and more others conscious. You can never be self-conscious about your humility. Because the moment I think I am humble, I have ceased to be humble. Because in order to be truly humble, your attention to be directed outwards. That is why we have this amazing God. Three self-effacing persons constitute the God whom he worshipped. He made us in his image first as man and woman. He makes us now as the church. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.